Let me tell you something about myself. Through the years, believe it or not, on multiple times, multiple occasions, not just once, I have held a gym membership. I know, shocking, right? Um, they never seem to have really worked for me. You know how it happens, you know, January rolls around, you've been eating cookies and stuff all December, and you know, it's time to do something about your, your physical state. So January, they hit you up, oh, come on, and this, they show you all their machines, and oh, yeah, I'm going to turn my life around, and you sign up for the membership, but... It's more than just signing up, isn't it? Don't you also then have to go? And don't you then also have to, and here's where I always got in trouble, you have to force your body to endure things you don't want to. And you have to do it consistently and over and over before anything positive starts to happen, right? So I get my membership and I don't do that. I get the membership in vain. That's kind of what Paul is talking about in today's passage. He's talking about the grace of God and the horrible possibility that we could receive it in vain. I've titled today's message, Benefiting from God's Grace. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 1 and go through 13. Now... Because we are working together, we also exhort you to not receive God's grace in vain. For it says, in an acceptable time I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Look, now is the good, acceptable time. Look, now is the day of salvation. Paul here uses one of his favorite words, sunergos. Soon is the preposition with or together with. Ergon or ergos is, is the word work. So people who work together, co-laborers, uh, fellow workers. Sometimes I think people misrepresent Paul. They think he was some kind of maverick, kind of a lone ranger type guy, a lone wolf out there. You know, he was the oddball among the apostles. He wasn't one of the original 12. Uh, through his ministry, people often said he didn't really qualify as an apostle. And uh, he, you get this idea that maybe Paul was this malcontent who couldn't get along with anybody, who thought he knew it all and couldn't work with anybody else because he was so arrogant that he had to do everything his own way. But if you read his letters, if you read what Luke tells us of his actual ministry in the book of Acts, that's not at all the way Paul worked. Paul never went out to do ministry by himself. He always went in teams. And there were even moments where uh, extenuating circumstances forced him to flee and leave others behind as happened in Berea when they chased him out of the city. He ran off and uh, went down to Athens, but we read in Acts that he, he was restless. His heart could not rest, and he talks about it in his letters until he was reunited with Timothy, uh, or Titus, I'm sorry, and, and the, the co-laborers he had in the ministry he was doing, and he ends up in Corinth with, 
where he's reunited and spends 18 months there working with a team of people. And he partners up immediately with Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, that's just the pattern of how Paul did his ministry. He always worked together with other people. That's really the only way ministry is supposed to happen. When we run into people who think of ministry as something to be territorial about, uh, protective, uh, I think we're seeing somebody who's got it wrong. And Paul never thought of ministry that way. It was always a shared work. So he says, because we're in this together, guys, you are collaborating with me. And he's talked about it earlier in the letter, how through the tremendous hardships he's just come through, he knows that the Corinthians have been participants with him in it because they have lifted him up in prayer. And it is those prayers that God has responded to and delivered Paul. And they have been working together in this work that Christ has set before us. So because we're doing this together, let me have the boldness to exhort you. A word of exhortation. An exhortation is not quite a correction. It's a little more positive than that. It's not just saying you're doing something wrong, but uh, it's, it's a, a, a plea to not settle for less. That's what an exhortation is, right? You're here, but man, you could be here. Don't settle for this. Press on, move forward, go deeper, aim higher. That's an exhortation. So what is his exhortation? <clears throat> Don't receive God's grace in vain. The word he uses there is kenos, which simply means empty. Here's the, the picture he's painting. You receive God's grace, but there's nothing to show for it. Your basket remains empty. That's a horrifying thought, that you could receive something as precious as God's grace and have nothing to show for it. But isn't that the way a lot of people want to construe the Christian faith? Oh, you hear the gospel, right? Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins, and if I believe in him, my sins will be forgiven, and at the final judgment, I will be declared not guilty, and I will be granted eternal life. So, yeah, sign me up for that. But I don't want to check back with you, Jesus, until the final judgment. I want that grace, but I don't want you to do anything. I just... Uh, let's just wait for the end of my life and then, then we can recheck on things. It is possible. Or, or Paul wouldn't warn about it, right? It is possible to receive God's grace in vain, to receive God's grace and not allow it to do anything in our lives. And Paul is burdened by that possibility. Don't let that happen. And he quotes from Isaiah uh, 49, verse 8. And Isaiah 49, 8 opens a new oracle, a new sermon. Uh, and I believe when 
once we get past chapter uh, 40, I believe we're into the portion of the book of Isaiah that was probably written about 100 years later than Isaiah lived. Uh, the prophet never identifies himself by name in these final chapters. Um, and it very clearly the setting is after the exile has happened, not 100 years before, which is when Isaiah lived. Uh, but it's a, a message of comfort for those who have already s received double uh, what their punishment they deserve. So uh, this promise to the returned exiles who've just come back from exile and uh, everything is still in shambles, this is an oracle where God is saying that there is a time of his favor. There is a day of his salvation. There is a chronology to it. There is a specific moment for it. And God is letting them know that there is coming a moment in which he's going to restore them fully from exile. He's going to draw in people from everywhere and not only just restore them as his people Israel, but that he's going to make sure in that day of salvation that all flesh, all humankind will be aware that Yahweh is Jacob's Savior. That's the promise in the passage Paul is referencing here. But he zeroes in on these, this opening salvo in that oracle where he says, in an acceptable time I heard you. There was a, a, a good time to, to hear. Uh, in the day of salvation I helped you. And this is the comment Paul has to make about that verse. Look. Open your eyes. Now is that good, acceptable moment. Open your eyes. Now is the day for salvation. You see, salvation, Paul is saying, is not something that's going to happen someday when you die. Salvation is happening now. Don't miss out on it. And in what sense is God hearing and saving now? It's in the whole process of transformation he's trying to carry out in our hearts and lives. It's in this, and we've just talked about it in the previous chapter, it's this service of reconciliation where we are being reconciled to God and we are being entrusted with the task and the message of reconciliation for the whole world. We plead, Christ pleads through us, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to each other. Some of us want to be saved, but we don't want to be a part of that. We don't want God to change my relationship with him. We don't want him to change my relationship with those around me. We certainly don't want him to make it our life's work to uh, invest ourselves in the reconciliation of the world. We're too busy with ourselves. And we are tempted to receive God's grace in vain. Paul goes on describing, and in these chapters, he's, he's laying out for the Corinthians what the true Christian life should look like. And he's using his own ministry as an example of it, his and those with him. He says, we are giving no one any cause for offense. Notice how many negatives. No one, not any cause for offense so that fault may not be found with the service we render, but are commending ourselves in everything as God's servants with great perseverance. Let me unpack some things about that. First of all, Paul says we are doing this 
work Christ has called us to in such a way that we are not offending anybody in any way. How different is that approach of Paul's to that of self-proclaimed culture warriors who take to social media and YouTube and put out these hateful, hateful, vile videos where they ridicule and mock and denigrate people who they think are wrong because it generates likes, it generates hits, and it produces income for them. Paul was not a culture warrior. He was a healer. And he did everything he could to present the gospel in the most appealing way he possibly could because if all you do is tell somebody you're wrong and you're a sinner and you're going to hell, that does nothing to help them. It doesn't. That is not the gospel. The gospel is God doesn't want you to end up there. And he's made it possible for you to completely avoid that if you'll just trust him. If you'll just surrender to the process of redemption he's made possible. But we have people who are waving uh, this LGBT banner and getting into fights and wars about it and alienating uh, people completely from Christ and the message that they so desperately need because we are hateful about it. There's no excuse for that. And if you're listening to that kind of stuff on social media, cut it out. Stop it. Don't allow yourself to be poisoned. That is not Christ's voice. Shut it off. Let the algorithms discover a new thing that you're interested in listening to. Don't chase those rabbit holes. And Paul says, that's the way we go about it. I try to do everything I can to avoid causing any offense because I don't want any fault to be found with the service we're rendering. And what is that service? In chapter 5, verse 18, he says that. God has reconciled us to himself in Christ and has entrusted to us the service of reconciliation. So Paul sees Christian life as a commitment to God's grand call to reconciliation. If we are offending and fighting and bruising and wounding people left and right, we are not warriors of God. We are working for the enemy. Paul says we don't want anybody to have any cause to reject the service we are trying to render. In fact, we're commending ourselves in everything we do as God's servants. And Paul is very clear. It's not that I'm this great guy. Listen to me. I've figured it out. Let me, I'm the great speaker and I will tell you all the things you need to live a good and happy life. I will resolve everything for you. No, he's saying Christ has everything you need. And all I'm here to do is to tell you about him. I am a servant. Christ is the big one. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's the one who wants to absolutely transform not just your life, but the whole world. He's in the process of saving everything. And I'm inviting you to join him. 
Uh, we commend ourselves in everything as God's servants. And he says we do it with great perseverance. That's another one of my really favorite words in the New Testament. The Greek word there is hupomone. It joins a preposition hupo, which because of the great vowel shift, we in our language today have it as hypo, as in a hypodermic needle. That is a needle that goes under the skin. Or when you're in Alaska, you might suffer from hypothermia. That's when your body temperature goes under the temperature it should be. Hypo, under. And then meno is simply the verb that means to remain, to stay put. I love that image. That word is translated uh, perseverance, endurance, patience, fortitude. Uh, but it has, there's a, like a, a word picture associated with the word, right? There's a weight on your shoulders. And rather than throwing it off to the ground, rather than squirming out from under it, you stay put. You keep that backpack on. You bear the burden of it. And Paul's very clear, this life we are called to in Christ is going to involve some burdens. It's going to involve some weights. And we need to be prepared to stay put under them. To bear them. Our approach to life often is to do anything you can to get out from under that. And Paul says, no. Persevere, endure, stick with it. There are things we will have to face every day of our lives until we die or Christ returns. We're going to face these things and we need to enter into this life with the commitment, I'm going to bear up under that weight. I'd like to ask you to ponder uh, some of the things we've been talking about so far. God's grace, the possibility of receiving it in grain. Let me ask you, are you actively pursuing God's grace in your life right now? Or are you waiting for God's grace once you die? So what does this pursuit of God's grace look like in Paul's life? What is he persevering in? And now he's going to have... Uh, a list of nine bad things, a list of eight good things, and then another list of nine things that are contrasted. So let's start with the bad. Chapter 4, I mean verse 4, the second half of verse 4. Great perseverance in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in prisons, in riots, in troubles, in sleepless nights, in hungers. I want you to notice about this list. Every single one of them is in the plural. This means that every single one of these things Paul mentions are not things that happened once to him. There are things that have happened to him more than once. They have been recurring things he has had to deal with in his life. And Paul says, I have borne up under the weight of these things. A couple of these stand out to me. Hardships. That word has the meaning of lacking something. There's a necessity you have. You don't get what you need. Or he also says hungers, not hunger, 
hungers. In other words, there is more than one occasion in Paul's life in which he has had to go hungry. Given the privilege of his upbringing, I suspect that that had never happened to Paul before he became a Christian, that he had ever had to go hungry. But this became a new reality in his life, that it happened multiple times. Sometimes people quote uh, David in Psalm 37, verse 25, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. And some people turn this general observation of David into some kind of a promise from God that you will never ever go hungry. Well, apparently Paul hadn't read that because he went hungry more than once. He experienced hardships, lack of necessities, multiple times in his life. Now, God does not forsake. Paul is not saying, yeah, God's abandoned me and I'm still here bearing up under it. No, he's just saying that as I've been following Christ and trusting in his faithfulness, there have been moments where I've had to do without. There have been moments when I've been beaten, not once, not twice, multiple times. I have been beaten. I have been scourged as much as the Jewish law would allow. Not one lash, not two, 39. I have been beaten with rods. I have been stoned and left for dead. This has happened multiple times. I have been thrown in prison multiple times. People have started riots trying to use mob violence to kill me more than once. In fact, he just got out of Ephesus from a situation like that where the whole city, I've been to the ruins of Ephesus, that was a huge city, big, big city, and they got the whole city riled up. For two hours they were yelling about it. Paul has faced sleepless nights, not once. Multiple times he's, he's been unable to sleep because of the burden in his heart about what's going on with the believers in Corinth, about the struggles and the opposition they're facing in Ephesus. All these problems that come before him have had their, they've borne a weight on his heart that has kept him up at night. And that has happened multiple times. Let me ask you about this. Paul's given us his list of hardships, of things he's had to bear. What recurring burdens have you had to bear because you follow Jesus and are pursuing his grace in your life? If I were to stop here, you might be left with the mistaken impression that following Christ is miserable. It's all about beatings and imprisonments and riots and sleepless nights and hardships and hungers. And it, it, you might be left with this idea that following Jesus is the hardest thing in the world. Why would anybody want to do that? And, and, and I've even heard Christians voice this mistaken idea that the reason I have to suffer all of this now is that that is the price you have to pay to get in on salvation. So I'll be miserable in this life because then I will be able to enjoy an awesome eternal life later. 
That's not how Jesus described it. Let me use his words. Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one, no one, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The reason we put up with all the negatives, the reason we bear up under the weight of it, is not that that's the cost of getting the good stuff. It's not that we are somehow paying for the grace of God. It's that as we are embracing the grace of God in this fallen world, these are the things that happen to us, but the grace is so much better that we don't care. The grace is so much more valuable than the absence of these hardships that we endure them because the grace is more important to us. We cling to it. So what are some of the good things Paul has to talk about? Verse 6, with purity. I'll tell you this list of eight good things is in the singular, every single one of them. Because problems happen multiple times, they are a recurring annoyance, but they are not constant, and they will not be around forever. However, the good things Christ is bringing into our lives are constant and eternal. The things we are discovering are going to mark our existence forever. So he uses the singular to describe these ongoing realities. Purity. Paul has discovered purity in a world that is marked by darkness and grime and filth everywhere you turn, denigrating things. Paul has found purity. God has actually brought into his heart a beginning of a recovery of purity. Knowledge, in the Hebrew sense of knowing, as in the experience of knowing. He has come to know God. He knew a lot about God before, but now he knows God, and more importantly, he is known by God. And he has finally begun to know other people. You see, the way we know each other in Christ is the way human beings were meant to know each other. And it's a whole different level of knowing. It's a soul-to-soul bond. And there's an openness that was impossible before Christ. With patience. The word he uses here is not the word that the hupomone. This word, um, macrothumian. Macro means long And thumian means burning, and it's used in the sense of burning incense in a temple, that kind of thing. It's the idea of something that's just got a slow, long burn. He says, I have discovered the ability to just be patient, 
to patiently await Christ's intervention. When all these things are happening, when all the things, the burdens are piling on my back and I feel like I have no idea where to turn next, I have learned to just wait because inevitably Christ will give the wisdom, will give the direction, will provide the open door. He will do whatever has to happen. I have learned to be patient and to let that slow burn continue in my heart. Goodness in a world with so much that's not good. Paul says, Christ has given me goodness. The Holy Spirit. Not only does he know the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in his heart and life. This communion with God, this uninterrupted communion with God is uh, a reality now. And he is, uh, the Holy Spirit is in him and he lives his life in the Holy Spirit. He has discovered genuine love. Not what the world calls love. But the real thing where you're willing to just give your life for the other and you don't need anything in return. You're not trying to use it to manipulate, to gain something. You're not using it as an excuse to get uh, physical uh, rewards from another person. It is simply an honest, open pursuit of the good of the other. With a message of truth. You see, Paul knows this message I'm proclaiming. I don't have to twist it. I don't have to bend it around. I don't have to be sneaky about how I present it and try to hoodwink people into taking it on because it is absolutely true. I can just simply and openly say it. This is what it is, people. There's nothing to hide here. There's nothing to be sneaky about. I am sharing a true message, and I'm doing so with God's power through weapons of what is right in our right hand and in our left. In a world marked by what is wrong, Paul has found himself armed to face it with what is right. That's why he doesn't respond to the hatred of the world with more hatred. He responds with weapons of light, with kindness, with gentleness, with patience. God has given him the power necessary to bring about what is right in a world that is all wrong. Paul's found amazing good things in his life. And let's look at the nine contrasts. Verse 8, through glory and dishonor. Paul has both been hailed as a wonderful apostle of Christ and uh, dismissed as a man who should not be worthy of living and taking a breath on this earth. Through slander and praise, he has been praised and hailed as a great servant of Christ. He has also been slandered even inside the churches by people who claim he is a false apostle. As imposters, yet true. As unknown and yet well-known. He talked in chapter 5, verse 10, about how he was well-known to God. 
Yeah, people say, who's this Paul? Who, who even knows who this guy is? He's nobody. He wasn't one of the original 12. He's not part of that group. He's, he's nobody. And yet he knows God has called me by name and known me as dying. And look, we live. Paul knows his body is wearing out on him. He's in the process of dying. All those beatings have taken their toll. His body is not what it used to be 10 or 20 years earlier. And he knows that he can't keep doing this forever. He is literally in the process of dying. And yet, he's still kicking. I'm still here. As disciplined, which in the context he's been facing often meant being chained to that column and whipped in front of everybody. That's happened to him multiple times. He's been disciplined in that sense, but I've not been put to death. They haven't executed me yet. As grieving, Paul speaks a lot about the tears he has shed. Most often, his deepest wounds and his, his greatest sorrows involve people in the church and his concern for their well-being. And the wounds he has suffered from people within the body of Christ. And it can seem like he's always sorrowful, always grieving, but that's not the true reality. The grief comes and goes. But what's going on always is the rejoicing. You see, joy in Christ is a certainty that the battle is won, that the victor is clear, and that we ha he has guaranteed the outcome. I don't know how I'm getting there. I don't know how this current crisis is going to resolve in glory and life. All I know is that it is going to. That is joy. It's this undergirding confidence that carries us, keeps us afloat in the storm because we know the deeper truth of what's going on. And we may be crying our eyes out at the moment, but underneath that, there's this absolute confidence, this is not the end of it. This is not how it stops. Always rejoicing as poor. Again, I think Paul grew up in a family of means. The, the life opportunities he had growing up could only have happened if his parents were well-connected and wealthy. So I don't think he, he lacked anything before he became a Christian. But uh, we know very much from his life as it's described to us in the book of Acts and we see in his letters, Paul was poor. He didn't own property. He didn't own a ship. He didn't own a business. He, he was poor. In fact, the final letter he writes, 2 Timothy, he, at the end of the letter, he says, Timothy, would you bring my cloak when you come to visit me in prison here? Because it's cold. Yeah, Paul says, I'm poor. But guess what? I have been able to make many rich. And he's not talking about money. He's talking about the kind of wealth Jesus said we should accumulate, the kind of wealth in the kingdom of God which cannot be accessed by moth or by thieves, cannot be eroded or stolen. It's secure eternally. Paul has been able to make many rich by engaging them with this service of reconciliation. <coughs> As having nothing... 
and yet possessing it all. Guess who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Guess who owns everything? Jesus. He bought it at the cross. And when he rose from the cross in victory over sin and death, he was proclaimed ruler of creation. King of kings and Lord of lords and all authority on heaven and on earth was granted to him. And Christ has said, I am sharing every good thing I have with you. So Paul says, yeah, I don't own anything. And yet, everything's mine. If it belongs to Jesus, he's sharing it with me. It belongs to me and him. Paul lived a life unconcerned with accumulating material wealth because of that. In all of these contrasts, there's a bad and a good thing. I want you to notice this. In every single one of them, the good thing is the one that wins out. The good thing is the final word on the matter. That's what Paul's talking about. Yes, there's a lot of mess and a lot of hardship and a lot of heartache involved, but in Christ, in, if we open ourselves up to the grace of God that he's trying to pour into our lives, the good is going to be what wins out every time. So I've asked you about difficult things you've had to endure. What enduring gifts have you received from Jesus as you follow him? Paul gave us a list of his. What would your list look like? And let's finish verses 11 through 13. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide you are not constrained by us, but you are constrained in your affections. Reward us with the same. I speak as to children. Open yours wide as well. This is almost embarrassing how openly Paul talks to his Corinthian brothers and sisters. He says, I've spoken openly to you. He uses a Greek idiom here, uh, uh, with wide mouths uh, and the idea being we've just clearly and openly without any kind of hiding of things we've just openly communicated with you Corinthians he says we have opened up our hearts wide to you we have bared before you the truth of who we are and we have opened ourselves up fully to you he says, you're not constrained by us. I'm sure some of his opponents were accusing Paul of this, of being a, a negative voice in their life because he would encourage them and exhort them and correct them when they were sinning. He would very clearly tell them, you cannot do this. This is not compatible with life in Christ. You need to abandon these things. It is shameful to pursue these kinds of patterns of living. Paul would say things like that, and he would challenge them to step into Christ and to be obedient and to live fully the faith they had embraced. Paul did that all the time, and some, and some of his enemies, no doubt, were saying, see, Paul is just trying to control you guys. 
He's just trying to put, bind you up in shackles of all these lists and things he's trying to tell you you have to do. I think, and Paul says, you're not constrained by us. We have no power to make you do anything. Yes, I correct. Yes, I challenge. Yes, I exhort you. But I know that I can't make you do squat. I have no power over you beyond what you open yourself up to receive. And I'm not trying to tie you up. I am trying to push you fully into the freedom Christ bought for you with his blood. That's all I'm pushing for. And today, I think we live in a culture that uses this lie to try to isolate people from the gospel message. And we have uh, therapists and, and uh, people uh, who have spread in our culture this idea that if anybody ever tells you you're wrong, they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. If anybody ever corrects you about anything, they should not be doing that. If anybody uh, says there's a better way to do something, you should not do this. Or, or God forbid says something like, this is shameful. God deserves better from you and he gave you life and you owe him something. You owe him everything. People say that's abuse. That's the terminology we use today. If anybody ever corrects you, they are abusing you. And it doesn't even have to, we've made up weird new words. It doesn't even have to really be a, a, a correction. It can just be a, just a, a little minor thing that you didn't want to hear. It can be a microaggression. It's not really aggression. It's just, I, I, I don't quite like it. And uh, so you're, I'm a victim of, of that. And so P, Paul says, we're not, we're not tying you up. We're not here constraining you. Let me tell you where you're constrained. You're constrained in your affections. The word he uses here uh, is, and this is hard to pronounce, splog noise. It's a G followed by a K. Um, that's the Greek word for guts, entrails. You see, in, in, in the ancient world, and I think this is true both in Hebrew and Greek, the heart was not the word you used to talk about strong emotion. The heart was where you talked about courage, will, drive, the core of who you are. But if you wanted to talk about passion and deep emotion, you talked about guts. You're restricted in your guts, he says. Your, your, your gut affection, the, the passion of you. And he pleads with them, reward us with the same. And the same here, he means what he's just said, of speaking openly and of opening wide his heart. Reward us with the same. And he says, I speak as to children. He's, he's like a father pleading with his child. I love you this much. Love me back. Respond in kind. And Paul says, I have opened my heart up to you. 
I'm not protecting myself. I'm not shielding myself. I'm not guarding myself. This is who I am. This is what I am. And I'm opening all I have up to you. And what I'm asking you to do is to do the same. Open your heart up to me. In life, we suffer thousands of wounds. Hurts that build up over time and betrayals and hardships. And, and it, it, by the time we're teenagers, we're not fit for human communion. Because we've been hurt so many times, we have built up all these barriers and all these protections and all these separations to keep our heart protected. And we do not expose ourselves to one another. We isolate ourselves. That's why some of these technologies have taken such force in our world today. You know why people love their smartphones? Because they're afraid to look at people in the eye. Because they're afraid to be face-to-face with another human being. They would rather text. They can't even bear to talk. How many separations can I put between myself and others? And that's the world we are living in. We are afraid of intimacy. And Paul says, let me tell you what Christ has been doing in my heart. I've decided I'm going to stop protecting myself. I'm just going to open up. I'm going to bear my heart to you. And I'm asking you to have the courage to do the same with me. Stop hiding. Stop protecting. Stop shielding. And just lay it out there. You talk about a service of reconciliation. That is what Christ is trying to do. He's trying to open our hearts to one another so that we can actually become the human family we were meant to be. And boy, do we have a long way to go. Paul ends his words here with this simple appeal. Look at me, here I am, unprotected. And he knows the Corinthians can stomp on his heart right now. I have opened myself up. You do the same. It's hard for us to look at that courage and that vulnerability, but that is exactly what Christ has done. You see, Paul says, I've been captivated by the love of Christ, and I've decided I would rather have that kind of love in my life than any other version of love. And that means doing what God did. Bearing your heart and saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm asking you to do. Open your heart up to me. And we can stomp all over it. We can stomp all over the blood of Christ. But he still offers it. And Paul says, I'm discovering how to live my human life in the same way. And he says, would you please do the same? Would you please respond to me in kind? I have one more question I'd like you to ponder. Are you living in fearless love as you follow Jesus? God's grace is amazing. 
its unmerited favor coming from the one who spoke the universe into existence, the very author of life. This grace of God forgives all our failures, all our sins, all our offenses. It commands the grave, and the grave must relinquish its captives. God's grace opens us up to all the good things he holds. This treasure trove is incalculable. All we have to do is surrender ourselves to Jesus, open ourselves up to it, and receive his grace. But God's grace is gentle. We can resist it. We can deprive ourselves of the fruit of God's grace in this life. We can receive it in vain if we choose to continue living the way we always did. But to those with the courage to surrender to grace, it opens up a life of wonders. I'm not saying an easy life. It'll be a life with hardships and difficulties but it will be a life in which goodness is a constant and in which we observe God's goodness fell every enemy. We observe God's goodness conquer every evil in our lives, in our hearts. It's a grace that will change how we are in our hearts and will give us the courage and the ability to open up to each other and expose our hearts to one another so that we can discover the intimacy for which God created us to begin with. Will you have the courage to allow God's grace to bear its fruit in your life? We're going to sing a song right now, and this is the time in our service where we want to give you a chance to do something in response to the Word of God. God has had things to say to us this morning, and maybe uh, He's been saying something to you. Maybe He's been calling you to Himself. And you know today's the day he's saying, I want you to have the courage to step into my grace. And I want you to have the courage to expose yourself to loving others the way I'm calling you to love others. And I want you to have the courage to expose yourself to a life devoted to reconciliation. And if he's telling you that this morning, I want to challenge you to have the courage to say, yes, God, I want to surrender to you. Let me ask you to stand. We'll have people here at the front. And as we're singing this song, come, take their hand, share with them, this is what God is calling me to and I want to surrender to it and let them pray with you and encourage you. Please come while we sing.